Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, and welcome to Cults and Crime, a true crime podcast where we cover cults, crime, and the coronavirus. Not the coronavirus, but I'm one of your hosts, Nicole. And I'm your other host, Jamie. I have a shelter in order place at my current residence, and I am sheltering in place. <laughs> Which is great for you guys. It means more episodes, better research, maybe. We don't know. We'll see. Nicole, what are we covering this week? All right, Jamie. So I'm covering the disappearance of Rosie Tapia. Okay, I'm ready. Let's get into it. All right. So, fun fact, I actually printed out my notes on paper, which is something we n- I never do. You heathen. Think about the trees. I know, Jamie. I'm, I actually feel very, like, professional, so bear with me as I use my professional voice. Okay. So, in the early morning of August 13th, 1995, Luane Tapia and her husband had returned to their ground floor apartment at the Heartlands Airport Complex, which is in Salt Lake City, Utah. So they had been spending a night out together. So they, you know, it was their nice date night. Before Louine had headed off to bed, she checked on her three younger children. She had a four-year-old set of twins and a six-year-old named Rosie. Now, they did have an older sister. Her name's Amelia, and she was 18 years old, and she was the one that was babysitting the younger children while her parents went out. So all the three younger children were shared one bedroom. So when Luane peeked in to check on her children, she was able to see that all three children were fast asleep in their beds. Luane went to bed, leaving the children's door cracked open just a little bit because the youngest was afraid of the dark. Later on that morning, around 5.45 a.m., Luane woke up and began to start her day. Luane had checked on her children again just after she'd woken up. Luane first noticed that the door in the children's room was closed, which, like I said, was unusual. She always left the door open. When Luane opened the door to her children's room, her heart sank. Rosie was gone, and the bedroom was a mess. At first glance, Luane noticed that the window was ajar and the screen tilters were moved. The curtains were parted and the blinds were damaged. Luane jumped to action, waking up the entire house and alerting local police as well as other family members of the disappearance. Police started their search almost immediately. In early reporting, Rosie's four-year-old brother had claimed to have awoken in the middle of the night to find a bearded man in the room. This man then instructed him to, quote-unquote, go back to bed. But in more recent reportings, there hasn't really been any sightings, and they actually say now that he didn't notice anything suspicious that night. Which I have to say is kind of hard. You know, it's, it's hard when there's conflicting reports, and especially it's a four-year-old boy who would have woken up in the middle of the night to notice that there was some kind of disturbance. He's not necessarily the most credible witness. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? What? Aisha Degree. Well, yeah, this is fairly similar. They're both young children missing out of their beds. Someone, someone who was in the room with them. It's pretty similar. Yeah, I hope this has a different ending. So investigators had jumped to action and spoken with Luane and her husband about the possibility that Rosie had just wandered away on her own. But Luane was 100% certain that her daughter didn't wander away. It would have been very, very unlike her. 
especially in the middle of the night or that early morning. Investigators had then shifted gears to any, to any suspicious encounters Rosie might have had the following days leading up to her disappearance. This is when police learned that the evening before Rosie's disappearance, she did have a very suspicious meeting. So just like a lot of apartment buildings, their apartment had a community playground where all the children in the apartments would go and play. Amelia Amelia had walked Rosie to play at the playground and left her to play with a couple of her friends. When it started to get dark, sometimes around uh, 7 or 8 p.m., there was a knock on the door. When Amelia had opened the door, there was an unfamiliar man carrying Rosie. That's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. Exactly, right? According to this man, Rosie was playing at the playground at the bottom of the slide when another when another child had slid down the slide, causing them to collide, and Amy had hurt her arm. She automatically thought that this was really, really weird. According to Amelia, she said the man appeared really nervous, he was stuttering, and when he talked, he spoke, quote-unquote, really low. Amelia had felt something was really off with him, so she thanked him for his help and assured him that she would tend to any injuries that Rosie had before closing the door. Which, listen to your gut, girl. Like, that would creep me out for sure. And, Jimmy, to make things even creepier, once once Amelia closed the door, she looked at Rosie, and Rosie said that she had never been hurt at all, and she had no idea how this stranger knew her name. Wait, what? I guess kids sometimes, you know, lie or misstate the truth, but, like, it's already kind of weird that a stranger is carrying you home when you just hurt your arm. It's not like she hurt her leg. She can walk. Well, yeah, definitely. And, you know, Rosie's six, so she's she is pretty young. But, yeah, for her to feel like it's strange that he knew her name... Like that that's a red flag like the girls uncomfortable we're all uncomfortable here <laughs> immediately well, yeah and like she only she hurt her arm right yeah she had it or that's so what he was alleged. there any yeah was there any proof that her arm was hurt like scrapes bruises cuts anything well according to rosie she never got she was never hurt jamie so that would creep me out because yeah. you know kids get hurt it's usually like at least a scrape or a bruise or their clothes are dirty or something well it's a little germ like when kids get hurt it can be really dramatic Oh yeah, it's, you know, it's crying. It's not bubbles. It's a whole. Th- it's a whole production. Yeah. A, you know, a scraped knee can be the world ending as we know it for a six-year-old, and then for her to get carried home by a stranger and then look at her older sister and say, "Oh, I was never hurt." That's well, and to be carried home, you would expect, you know, like blood, at least blood, you know. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I'm assuming if he wasn't just a garbage human, horrible person, a parent. Seeing a child getting hurt, to carry them home, that child would have to be really hurt. Yeah, I would think so as well. And I'm not a mom, but I, you know, if if I had noticed that two kids had collided on the slide, I don't think I would take them away from the park. I think I'd probably leave the child there unless it was severely. I would leave the child at the park unless she was severely injured and she needed to go home to get help. Oh yeah, worst case, like most like out getting away from the situation i'd be like well you can sit with me until you feel better because i don't know where your parents are and i'm not going to take you from the park in case your parents expect you to be here you know what i mean mm-hmm. i completely agree that'd be i think that it's just one of those situations where in hindsight they should have done something different. i don't know but you know it's just one of those things especially for an 18 year old girl to open the door and see a complete stranger it's 
creepy, and she went missing the very next day, Jamie. Well, that's not suspicious at all. <laughs> so, Jamie, I know that you'd mention Asia Degree, and you're hoping for a better ending. Well, please tell me they find her. I can't promise you a better ending. Come on. At 10 a.m., just hours after Rosie had disappeared, a jogger running with his dog had discovered the body of a small child in the Jordan River Canal and about two miles away from the Tapia's residence. The child was positively identified as Rosie. Rosie was still clothed, and there was no obvious signs of a struggle on her. Before the autopsy report would officially determine Rosie was murdered, investigators maintained that Rosie had wandered off and had actually drowned in the canal. Frustrated, the Tapia's family had spoke negatively of Salt Lake City police officers, which I would too for a premature dismissal of foul play. Amelia had taken to the media. We knew that Rosie wouldn't just climb out the window late at night and just leave and go throw herself in the river because we know she wouldn't do that. Luane also agreed, adding, Rosie could never climb out the window. She would never go outside without telling us first. However, investigators argued that they claimed they dismissed foul play as untrue, and they simply found it important to consider all possible angles first, including the possibility of Rosie wandering off. It wasn't until the following Monday that the devastating circumstances it wasn't until the following Monday that the devastating circumstances surrounding Rosie's death would lead detectives to officially list her case as a homicide. So once autopsy report was released, Rosie had suffered trauma to her body. She had been sexually assaulted. Investigators questioned the Tapia's family and their extended relatives as well as Heartland residents. There were few leads to follow other than Amelia's account of the stranger that carried Rosie to the apartment the night before. According to witnesses, a man that fit Amelia's description of the man had allegedly been watching the children play at the playground while sitting on a bench. It didn't even appear that he was supervising a child of his own. Which is like, it's just red flag, guys, come on. You see a strange man at the park watching children, like, say something. We get into this over and over again. Like, what are you doing at the park that's so important that this, in my opinion, real obvious red flag is something that you ignore? Like, I'm sorry, I, I know you're probably watching your own kids or jogging or, I don't know, eating a goddamn sandwich. I don't fucking know. But, like... Pay attention. Pay attention to the people around you. Pay attention to what's happening around you. If you see a weird guy, at the very least, memorize what he looks like. So that way when a kid does go missing, and they do go missing, we, like, as true crime fans, we see this again and again. Kids go missing. People go missing. Pay attention to your surroundings. I agree. Like, if the police come around, you can say, hey, this is what he looks like. Not just, well, there was a weird guy. I, I guess he looked white. Yeah, I agree. We need height. We need weight. Does he have any facial scars? Like, any scars at all? Beard? No beard? However, his clothes? Are they nice? Are they not nice? Like, there's so much information that you can get just from looking at someone that the police can use to track them down. Yeah, I totally agree. And then also, just as, you know, if, if I ever, if you notice a suspicious man watching children at a park, you have all the rights in the world to tell them to leave. Or a suspicious woman. Like, women steal kids, too. If you see someone that very obviously did not come there with children, and they're just sitting there watching children, that's a red flag. You have the right to be like, oh, hi, what kid's yours? Exactly. I know we say this all the time, but 
this, you know, it's, things could have been different and I don't want to dwell on that because we'd be here all day, but it's hard because Jamie, by 1996, there was a lot of, there was a lack of leads. So it became clear to investigators that unless a witness or the murderer himself had came forward, the case would go cold. Detective Jim Pryor had admitted, and I'll quote, We've got nothing at all. We're at a 100% standstill. End quote. Efforts were made to bring Rosie's case into national spotlight, but these attempts weren't working. Popular TV shows such as America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries were contacted, but... But both the shows rejected Rosie's case for, and I quote, quote unquote, lack of evidence, which I feel like means they need to hear more. Like this case doesn't have the evidence. It doesn't have anything. No fingerprints, no nothing. All you have is a description of a suspicious man. That's what I find hard to believe. Like you guys couldn't find anything. No swabs, no DNA, no like anything. I know. And that's why from, you know, 1996, there was no lack of evidence. The case wouldn't pick back up until 2010. Uh, This is when police actually released a composite sketch of the man. He was wearing sunglasses and a ball cap. This sketch was done off of Amelia's account of the stranger that was lurking around the playground before Rosie's disappearance. The Tapia's family hired a private investigator named Jason. Jason Jensen. So he did have a theory. He had believed that it was possible that during that day he had taken Rosie home to learn where she lived and he would come back for her later that night. And in 2012, the Tapia's family had announced their partnership with the Utah Cold Case Coalition. So for people that don't know what that is, like I didn't. (laughs) This coalition is made up of attorneys, private investigators, and public relations professionals. And other businesses who are all offering their expertise at no charge to help get justice for these victims. The Tapia's attorney, Kara Porter, publicly announced they announced they have information regarding a potential suspect and one or two other peoples of interest who may have been witnesses. According to Porter, the family met with Salt Lake City Police Department a month prior where detectives agreed that the new information could produce, and I quote, legitimate leads, unquote. However, Jamie, the name of the potential suspects and persons of interest are not publicly named. And out of respect for the, you know, that's out of respect for the ongoing investigation. Porter asked that anyone who had lived, worked, or visited the Heartland's apartments in 1995 would contact them. And they had added, quote, we have something to compare that information to now. And that's why it's critical. Every little bit of information that seems unimportant is now critical, unquote. And in 2019, although Luane was grateful to finally see her daughter's story touch people beyond the Utah borders, she was horrified to learn new, new details about Rosie's murder. These details have us true crime couch detectives shaking, Jamie. Luane learned that during Rosie's autopsy, they had actually found DNA underneath Rosie's fingernails. I'm sorry, what? Like, uh, what 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 I say, what I've been saying this whole time, where's the DNA at? Why they ain't got DNA? What I've been fucking saying. I know. The worst part is, Louine had asked them originally if they had had found any DNA evidence on her body, and they had told her no. And I know, I know police have their reasons, but I also can shake my hands in a fist over poor, you know, Rosie's mom, Louine. 
she wants to know any information she can about her daughter's murder so she could try to, you know, get some kind of condolence and they're lying to her or not giving her the whole truth. So the police did end up submitting that DNA to a laboratory that specializes in genetic testing. Jensen had said, quote, if they can solve the Golden State Killer murders, clearly we can solve Rosie's murder. And I feel pretty confident about that. We felt real relieved that there is a lot more that has been happening behind the screen than what they alluded to, end quote. A spokesperson for the police department had said that they couldn't justify why Luane was never provided was never provided details about the investigation that were yet revealed to our investigation discovery. To date, it's really unclear why. And I get it. Like, why would you not tell the mom that information but then tell the Discovery Channel? Yeah, it seems like, hey, maybe you should have some sort of priority here. Who needs to know more? The mother of the victim, who was a small child, or a TV station to get famous? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, well, I agree. It's. I don't feel like that was right. You know, you... you I, I've never lost somebody like this. I've never had any disappearance or murder of my child. But I couldn't imagine how furious I'd be learning information from another source other than the police department. In, um, in spring of 2019, the Utah Cold Case Coalition had released a sketch of a man based on the recollection from a fellow resident of Heartland's apartments. According to the Utah Cold Case Coalition, the witness was outside in the early hours of the morning when he saw a teenager coming from the direction of the canal. The witness noticed that the teen's pants appeared to be wet. The witness said the teen appeared to be somewhere around the ages of 16, maybe 17. He was Hispanic with a slight build and a narrow face with very high cheekbones. The teen was wearing denim jeans, a white shirt, and a medium-length gold chain. Salt Lake City Police gave the coalition permission to release the sketch, by the way. The sad thing is it didn't turn up as many leads as you would think. As of January 2020, the witness picked a photo of a man in the lineup that resembled the the composite he helped create last year. According to Jensen, the photo that was selected resembled the latest composite and is someone known as to be a member of the Tapia family. Though we don't know who. According to a very recent article, it has been revealed that the photo of the man the witness selected was actually acquitted from Amelia. Oh, was actually acquitted with Amelia. Before Amelia moved out, the children's bedrooms used to be her bedroom. When Amelia still lived with her parents, she used to sneak in her boyfriend through the same window that Rosie had been abducted from. According to Woodland, one of her friends, who remains unnamed, would drive him to Tapia's residence. Although Woodland never saw her friend crime through the window, he says that he, quote-unquote, knew of it. After witnessing his friend climb through the window to go visit Amelia, however, there were times when Woodland's friends had entered the Tapia's residence through the front door when Amelia's family wasn't home. Woodland says his friends denied being responsible for Rosie's murders. According to Woodland, Salt Lake Police has followed up with his friends earlier this year. Salt Lake Police has not commented on the details of this potential lead. But I feel like it's a really good one. Knowing that you can climb into that window is a big, 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 big knock on you. Well, yeah, and I feel like a group of people that just commonly went through the window or walked through the front door, those people should definitely be looked at. Yeah, I definitely agree. 
So they did a second lineup that was conducted with Amelia. Amelia had looked at a selection of photos and selected one she believes looked similar to the man who was carrying Rosie that day before she was abducted. While the man she selected was not has not been publicly identified, according to Jensen, the man was often seen at the apartment complex. Witnesses Jansen spoke to claimed that the man pictured, quote-unquote, disappeared and never returned after Rosie was murdered. There are two possible persons of interest with two different composites. According to Jensen, he asked Salt Lake City Police to investigate the two individuals and was assured that they would. However, it's unknown whether Salt Lake Police has followed through. According to Jensen, all they really need is some DNA evidence to test against the DNA they already have. But we have no we have no idea if they've taken the DNA samples from the suspects or not. So maybe they're doing it right now? Possibly. We we don't know, Jamie. And that's you know, it's it's hard because this is an ongoing police investigation. But the private investigators are right, Jensen's are right. All they need is DNA evidence to tie it because they have it from Rosie's body. So all they need to do is have these suspects give their DNA evidence and it busts the case wide open. Well, yeah, and I can't stress. So I'm in a class where it's specifically psychology and the law. And out of all the evidence out there, it's eyewitness reports. And then right underneath that is DNA evidence. Like those are the most important things to have in a court case. They would be able to solve this and get a conviction if they just had those two small pieces. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's like, and if I was a suspect in a murder investigation, I would be the first person to give my DNA to rule me out. Oh, yeah, definitely. I guess some people are, you know, paranoid, like, about the government having their DNA. So I don't, like, I don't want to be that person that's like, you, unless you give your DNA, you've obviously done it. But I can't necessarily say I understand it. And I feel the same here. So despite the Utah Cold Case Coalition's recent efforts, there hasn't been any arrests. However, the Utah Cold the Utah Cold Case Coalition remains confident that they become closer to breaking the case with each passing day. Luane had suffered a fall in 2019 and now struggles to walk. She hopes to live to see the day that Rosie's killer is caught. Alright guys, so that's all I have on this case. We will keep you updated if they end up doing the DNA test and if they decide to key us in on what's going on. Hopefully we'll find Rosie's murderer. Yep, my heart's broken. I'm probably going to get coronavirus at some point. I'm going to go get a drink. Thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate your patronage. I hope we're helping you guys get through the quarantine like you guys are helping us get through the quarantine. We're all in this together. Exactly. And we'll have you back next week for a cult. Okay, guys. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.